Welcome back to the show, everybody. We have an awesome guest that I first learned about six years ago, somewhere around there. Um, Dr. Gerald Pollack was on the Ben Greenfield podcast, and he is a professor out of University of Washington who is an author as well and is changing our understanding of water. And he's come on the show to really talk about what that means, what his new understandings are. He is the author of more than one book. He's got a couple on the way, so we are super excited to get him back on the podcast. But he's best known for the fourth phase of water, which is really a deep dive into what he calls easy water or uh, exclusionary zone water and is also known as structured water. So we've heard a lot about this lately. Um, we really want to take the deep dive into this and or I really wanted to take the deep dive into this uh, since hearing him back in the day, but now obviously uh, in the farming game and different things and continuing on the health and wellness path, uh, it was perfect timing. So I'm super excited to have Dr. Pollock on the show today. He will come back. He offers a lot of cool stuff on the deep dive of water, um, ways to enhance our body's own structure. Uh, they're very simple. Uh, many of them are free and completely cost-effective. It's just a matter of doing it, right? It's just not always the easiest thing to do. Um, but the techniques that he offers are phenomenal and easy to access for everybody. So I'm super excited to share this podcast with you guys. Uh, there's a number of ways you can support this podcast. First and foremost, just share it with somebody that you know is interested in the topic. Um, most people, when they hear this and they hear how easy it is to, to get your body to structure itself... Uh, and what that's actually doing in creating more energy within the body is pretty fucking phenomenal. And so you're going to want to share this with people that have any type of health and wellness interest. Um, also, leave us a five-star rating with one or two ways the show's helped you out in life. Our homies at Organifi are still going to hook you guys up. Uh, they're going to hook up everybody with uh, my favorite Organifi product. Just leave your IG or Twitter handle in the review so we can easily connect you and get you your prize. Thank you, Organifi, for doing that. And then final... And then finally, support our sponsors. They make this show fiscally possible. Each of them has been handpicked by myself or brought to me via my assistant, David. And I take a hard look and try everything out for size. I want to know, does this work? Is it something I can stand behind? And I'm happy to say that every single one of these I can stand behind firmly. These are incredible products and uh, incredible companies. Our first sponsor of the day is Organifi.com slash KKP. They are one of the longest acting sponsors. And as I mentioned earlier, just leave a five-star review with one or two ways the show's helped you out in life. And at the end of each month, we're going to randomly select a winning listener who will receive my favorite product from Organifi. Just leave your IG or Twitter handle in there and uh, we can easily connect you and get you your prize. Organifi.com slash KKP. You can grab a sunrise to sunset kit to be covered with red, green, and gold using the code KKP for 20% off everything there. This is my absolute favorite. So sunrise to sunset kit is the red, the green, and the gold. That covers all your bases from Organifi, and they have a number of other amazing products. Uh, Glow is an excellent one. If you're into bone broth and you're into uh, creating new sources of collagen, there are some superfood blends that actually help. And this comes, uh, there's some plant-based nutrition in here with high quality ingredients and less than three grams of sugar. But what it's gonna do is it's gonna help your body build more of the collagen where you need it, whether that's hair, skin, and nails for looks and aesthetics, or whether that's joint and connective tissue with so many of us that have, Back, bummed, banged up knees and bum backs and whatever the fuck else is going on. Make sure you check it out, Organifi.com slash KKP and uh, get a look at all their products because they're absolutely phenomenal. Thank you, Organifi. We're also brought to you today by Desnuda Tequila. Desnuda Organic Tequila is the cleanest, best tasting premium tequila on the market. Launched in January of 2022, Indianapolis-based co-founders Nick Bloom and Brian Edding selfishly wanted a tequila that didn't leave them feeling terrible after a night of drinking and a spirit that fit into their health and wellness lifestyle. 
Out of necessity, they created desnuda, which means naked. Their blue Weber agave plants have been organically grown in Jalisco's Amatian region for seven years. Desnuda is certified USDA organic and GMO and additive-free, meaning zero pesticides and herbicides for seven long years. Their domestic competitors grow for only three to four years, all while using pesticides and herbicides. Zero sugar is added to Desnuda, giving their tequila a low, nearly non-existent glycemic index. Other tequilas on the market that do add sugar tend to yield larger profits at the expense of your nasty hangovers the next day. Lastly, there are no additives like glycerin, food coloring, or sweeteners, which gives you the cleanest true-to-form tequila, just like they made it hundreds of years ago. Nick and Brian aren't just passionate about great tequila. They genuinely care about what they put into their bodies, just like so many of us, and believe there is a way to balance life with alcohol. So next time you're out on the town or looking for a tequila to share with friends, don't choose one of the many low-quality, high-additive spirits out there. Instead, drink clean, drink naked, and choose De Snuda Organic Tequila for your health and wellness journey. Order De Snuda at www.desnudatequila.com and use the code KKP for 15% discount on all purchases. We're also brought to you by my homies today at Bioptimizer. Stress is a common factor that affects everyone in today's fast-paced world, leading to various health issues, including heart problems, inflammation, obesity, and mental illness. While most people focus on finding relief through meditation or trips to the spa, what if the root cause of stress is actually a deficiency in a key nutrient? Introducing Magnesium Breakthrough, the ultimate magnesium supplement that offers the full spectrum of all seven types of magnesium, especially formulated to reach every tissue in your body for maximum health benefits. This one-of-a-kind product is designed to reverse low levels of magnesium, which could be causing a multitude of health issues. But what sets magnesium breakthrough apart is its ability to impact the release of stress hormones like cortisol and block the activity of more stimulating neurotransmitters, leading to a more peaceful and resting state. This means that the supplement acts like a break on your body's nervous system, helping you to calm and soothe, promoting a better quality of life. Simply go to magbreakthrough.com slash kingsboo. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash K-I-N-G-S-B-U and get 10% off on all Magnesium Breakthrough products with all caps K-I-N-G-S-B-U. That's kingsboo at the end there. And if you go for a little bit of time, if you buy three bottles, you can get exciting gifts with purchases like blue light blocking glasses and more. Check it all out, magbreakthrough.com slash kingsboo. And of course, uh, with these, they've shortened that URL and it's still long. uh, So I appreciate the effort, boys. Um, That's all linked in the show notes. So don't worry about writing all this down. Just click it in the show notes. Go and make your purchase. Kingsboo at checkout for 10% off. Last but not least, we're brought to you by my homies at paleovalley.com. I'm talking about their bone broth protein. This is the best. So it is not processed with high heat, which can denature and coagulate the protein, making it harder for your body to absorb and use. It's not extracted with harmful chemicals like many are. It's 100% grass-fed and finished. Their cows are guaranteed to have never been fed grains ever. Since the term grass-fed is unregulated, large collagen manufacturers are using this claim as well as pasture-raised when in actuality, the animals are finished in a feedlot where they're fed grains. These cows are never given antibiotics, steroids, or hormones. So these dangerous compounds do not end up in the final product. They're made from bones, not hides. This is easily the most important talking point, y'all. Most companies use the hides because it's cheaper. When collagen is sourced from the animal's skin, we miss out on all the extra nutrients and restorative benefits of the bones. You want it from bones. That's why it's called bone broth protein. So you're getting all your bone broth in a delicious protein. We get the chocolate flavor and it is stupid good. I've been mixing it with slightly warmed, not cooked, but warm. I'll warm up some raw milk from Jersey cows and I'll mix it in with a little hand whisker. 
and it's hot cocoa. It's the greatest thing on earth. My kids love it. Their hair's growing super fast. Mine is on the side of my head in the back, but not on top. And it's just awesome. I know it's one of the best ways to cover the bases to make sure that I'm getting enough collagen in my body. And as you know, your body's going to take about 20 to 30 grams of other protein to make its own collagen. If you're supplementing with good, high-quality bone broth or bone broth protein, now your body doesn't have to make that conversion. It's making it easier. And so the other protein sources that I'm getting in my body can be used for muscular recovery and things of that nature. Check it all out, paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L. EY.com and use code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, for 15% off everything in the store. And without further ado, Dr. Gerald Pollack. Dr. Gerald Pollack, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much. Um, I appreciate the invitation. I'm happy to talk with you. (laughs) Yeah. As I mentioned before the podcast, I think I first heard you on the Ben Greenfield show uh, some years ago, and uh, really blew my mind. Obviously, Ben is is a a buddy of mine, and that he's you know uh, an athlete, an athlete. He's a biohacker. He's he's into the the you know one foot in ancestral living, one foot in the miracle of modern science. And uh, his show has turned me on to quite a few great people. Um, you've written the fourth phase of water. Uh, you had one before that. What was the name of that one? As well, it was called Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life. Cells, gels, and the engines of life. I love that. Yeah, it's a cool title. <laughs> Very cool. Well, let's dive in. Um, some people have heard of the fourth phase of water and likely because of Ben's work, um, but haven't necessarily you know, understood what easy water is or any of these things. So I'd love for you to break down um, you know, your work as a professor, what, dove, what got you into water so we can backtrack before we dive into uh, fourth phase of water and easy water. What well, track, where was your track life going up? Yeah, I, I first, um, you might say, stepped into the water or into um, studies of water, oh, uh, a couple of decades ago. I, we had been studying uh, the contraction of muscles at the molecular level, trying to figure out how the uh, contractile proteins interacted with each other to produce motion and force. Uh, it had been a passion uh, of mine. And I... Uh, I invited a Hungarian guy uh, to come to my lab and work. He did uh, uh, structural work in muscle. And coming from the airport, uh, uh, driving from the airport to my home where he and his wife were staying for a few days, he said, you know, uh, there's a a conference in Hungary and the conference conference is organized uh, to commemorate the life of a famous biophysicist whose areas were water and muscle. Could you come maybe and present your work on muscle? So of course I said yes. Why not? Uh, you know, and I I went to Hungary and and there uh, uh, my presentation was I think pretty well received. But for me uh, the take home message was more what I experienced at the meeting. At the meeting, the meeting was dominated by uh, uh, one guy. His name is Gilbert Ling. And I'd heard uh, of, of Ling before and uh, uh, mixed sentiments about the kinds of things he did. So I met Gilbert and I listened to his presentation and he was talking about water. He was talking about structured water. I, I'd heard the term before, but I, I really didn't know a whole lot about it. So he made his presentation and I, I, was, I was really uh, deeply impressed. 
Um, I was impressed not only by him and his presentation, but by the dozen or so other people uh, who were in attendance at the meeting and who presented evidence to support the views of Gilbert Ling. Not that Gilbert Ling didn't have evidence, but uh, I was impressed by a whole group of people who had evidence to support the idea that in biology, in the cells, that water was not... um, you know, uh, this liquid water that I like to drink on occasion, maybe not enough. <laughs> uh, but but the molecules were organized, um, you know, like soldiers at attention. And, and he claimed that all cells are filled with this kind of so-called structured water. I was impressed, I must tell you. I decided that, uh, you know, I'm easily impressed. So <laughs> I decided to check myself out with a few students in my laboratory. And I, I gave them one of Gilbert's books. Uh, I forget the title, uh, which one, but by that time he'd written approximately four books. I, I think there were seven before he passed a few years back. Um, and, and they read the book and they came back to me and their responses were, were pretty uniform. Um, they said, this is really interesting. And if it's right, it means that essentially all of biology is wrong. Uh, why was all of biology wrong? Well, biology is based on the notion, not the evidence, the notion that water uh, is merely the background carrier of the more important molecules of life. In other words, the water in the cell doesn't doesn't really do anything. It just sits there dissolving proteins and dissolving nucleic acids and, uh, and whatever. And all the biology is built on that premise. If that premise is wrong, then much of biology needs to be reconsidered. It seemed pretty important. And, and so I, I, I then, you know, I had a, a bit of money from the National Institutes of Health to continue to study uh, muscle contraction. And I decided this is too important uh, to let go. And so I diverted that money to some uh, beginning studies of water because I was really curious uh, about it. And I I was convinced by that time that Gilbert had something really important to say. You know, Gilbert was just, it was no ordinary scientist. Uh, Gilbert came from from China. He came um, in 1948. So after the war, uh, the Chinese government decided to send a cohort of some of their most promising um, young scientists to study in the U.S. And there were three of them. There was a physicist, there was a chemist, and there was a biologist, uh, Gilbert being the biologist. Well, the physicist went on to win a Nobel Prize. The chemist went on to win a Nobel Prize. And um, Gilbert maybe should have won two Nobel Prizes because of all of his monumental contributions, but um, he was controversial and and he was passed over. So anyway, uh, that's a long story uh, about how we entered uh, the field uh, of water. And the first thing I did was to write the book that you uh, mentioned, Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life. And the, the book was meant to convey to, um, to a I wouldn't say a lay audience, but a audience of people who are not necessarily experts in in the field uh, uh, of water or so-called structured uh, water. And uh, I think I did reasonably well, but um, uh, the book was received uh, 
controversial uh, kinds of reviews. Uh, some reviews said, oh, this is just more of Gilbert Ling, and we all know that Gilbert Ling is a crackpot, so just forget it. Pay no attention to this book. On the other hand, uh, uh, there were other reviews, and the one that I remember the, the most is from a prominent Harvard cell biologist. And of course, if it's Harvard, you have to take it seriously, right? <laughs> he said, this is, this is a 304-page a, a preface to the future of cell biology. And that one I liked. <laughs> so anyway, um, that was the first book. The second is pretty uniformly popular. Uh, and and um, that's where we started. And then we began to do experiments. So um, I don't want to dwell on the origins too long, but um, yeah, that's how we started. Um, no, that's that's fantastic. It paints, it paints a picture in most of my podcasts. I usually want to get, you know, how did people, what was life like growing up and a whole bunch of background, but understanding oh your time is limited. You know, I appreciate us diving into the past there for a moment. Um, explain the layout of what your discovery was like with easy water in the fourth phase of water. So people have an idea and concept of what we're about to dive into before we talk about some of the science and experiments you've been running. Well, yeah, it's a, so in, in terms of generalities, it, it it's um, uh, it, just as Gilbert, uh, was was mentioning it's a kind of water that has structure to it. It's not an ordinary you know water like this one. The molecules are bouncing around. They're randomly oriented and they're bouncing at a furious rate. And this kind of water, they're they're not. But what we found is that the uh, idea of Gilbert that they were the water molecules were lined up uh, like soldiers at attention is not uh, we believe not not correct. And um, there are many reasons uh, we came to, and it's too bad because Gilbert was a friend, and you don't you don't like to challenge friends and uh, suggest that their idea is not not correct. But we couldn't we couldn't help it. Um, so let let me explain. Um, the first thing is that uh, Gilbert uh, Gilbert was thinking of the water inside the cell as like a liquid crystal. When you think of liquid crystals. Um, uh, there, you, you, you kind of know what crystals are. You know, the atoms are organized in a very regular way. And liquid crystals are pretty much the same, except that they flow. They tend to flow. They're, they're usually pretty viscous kinds of uh, entities. And they, they, uh, they flow. So um, w- one, of, uh, um, one of the reasons why we eventually had to reject the idea uh, well, let me back up a step. Um, in, in Gilbert's concept, it, it's a liquid crystal, and crystals, uh, have, as many many people know, tend to exclude impurities, right? So think about ice. You know, ice, ice begins with water, and if the water has some impurities in it, as the ice forms, the impurities are typically excluded, in order to achieve a pure crystal, because the crystal can't be pure if it has impurities in it. So, so that's how you get pure ice. And, you know, some people recognize the glacial moraine at the foot of the glacier that forms as the uh, water uh, freezes in, in, into glaciers. And that, that's a good example of, you know, of, of a crystal forming and excluding, basically excluding everything that had been in the, in the water. So, we began looking for an experimental preparation uh, in which 
um, in which particles or molecules are excluded. That was the premise that we started with. And um, we came upon the preparation surprisingly easily uh, through uh, by, by dint of good fortune. We took a gel, we put it in the chamber, and uh, we added water, and then we added particles to it. And we were looking for the possibility that we could find a region, maybe next to the gel, that tended to exclude those particles. And we found it very quickly. Um, we found um, we found a, a zone uh, that was next to the surface of the gel that um, built over time. Uh, by time, I'm talking about five or ten minutes. And as it grew right next to the gel surface, it progressively excluded these little particles that we had in the water. So uh, we were wondering, you know, is it possible that this region that was sitting next to the gel uh, could be a region of uh, water structure like like Gilbert found. And uh, many experiments later said, yes, that this water is completely different from ordinary water. And that that's why we called it fourth phase water. But uh, in, inter, in, in the time before that, um, we began calling it an exclusion zone because it was a zone in the water uh, that excluded particles. It was a suggestion of an Australian colleague. And, um, you know, in retrospect, it doesn't really make uh, good sense because, because the water that's in, in the exclusion was just one manifestation of what we found. So by calling it exclusion zone, it's easy or easy to remember. Works in the U.S., not in Europe, where it's EZ, but easy to remember. So it kind of stuck, but... But I, I think more officially, if we if we want to say officially, we call it the fourth phase of water. So, but uh, now the, the, one of the early studies that that we did was to check with an electrode to see if this zone, um, which you could almost see with your naked eye, but we usually use a microscope. It's pretty big, you know. It's like half a millimeter. Uh, often we've seen even even larger. And, um, and so the exclusion zone um, uh, of, of water. So we stuck uh, electrodes in to see whether they had any charge. We used electrodes, uh, microelectrodes, which parenthetically were, were invented by the same Gilbert Ling and used very widely to measure the electro electrical potential inside cells. You know, you can stick it in and don't destroy the cell. It's, it's sort of like a colleague talked about um, when you use big electrodes, it's like, as he put it, uh, shoving a telephone pole up your rear end and expecting <laughs> you to <be> normal. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it's a nice, colorful explanation. But these are tiny. You got a good visual of that. <laughs> yeah, these are really tiny. You can stick it in the cell and pull it out and then no problem. Anyway, we use those electrodes and we found that typically this zone is negatively charged and the region beyond the zone, the region of ordinary uh, liquid water, was positively charged. And the sum had to be zero because um, the sum has to equal uh, water, which is neutral. We started with water, and so the plus and minus charges, if they're separated, has to go somewhere. And um, uh, have, to, have both have to go somewhere. So it's like a battery. Uh, where you've got a negatively charged EZ and positively charged region beyond 
that. So this is really important because it, it, being like a battery, uh, it contains potential energy. And the question is, well, if this stuff is in, inside your body, is the uh, potential energy just thrown away or is it actually used for something? And the evidence so far is that it's indeed used for something, that the cells are filled with this kind of water. And this water has a, a, a substantial amount of potential energy, which might or might not uh, be used by the body. And, um, and we have some examples of uh, situations where we think it is used by the body. And I'm happy to talk about that at any time. But just to summarize, um, um, well, one more thing I want to discuss, but to summarize uh, um, the uh, exclusion zone of fourth phase water sits next to various surfaces, hydrophilic water-loving surfaces, not hydrophobic like Teflon, only hydrophilic. And it builds substantially. Uh, we found that the structure is actually a sheet-like structure, uh, sheets, hexagonal sheets of hydrogens and oxygens that build one sheet at a time. Uh, so each sheet serves as a template for the growth of the next sheet. And you can have a number of sheets we, we've seen can total close to a million of them under the right circumstances. So it's not just a laboratory curiosity, but um, it's something substantial. And as I said, it it, it fills, fills your cell. So just one, one more uh, consideration is, well, how does this battery get charged? You know, any any kind of battery needs charge, and uh, uh, my my laptop would not be working if it if we're not re recharged, and your cell phone would not be working, etc. So, where does the charge come from? And it turns out that it comes from um, a few sources. The main one being infrared light, um, and and we we learned of this uh, not not because of of any particular brilliance on our part, but because I was smart enough to um, uh, attract undergraduates uh, who were are open minded and curious, and they often do what what you don't expect them to do. <laughs> so I this one undergraduate student is sitting sitting at the bench with a chamber where he could. He could see, it was a, it, we used a surface, not of a gel this time, but of naphion, which is a hydrophilic polymer. And, uh, and he was watching the exclusion zone grow next to this surface. And there was a lamp sitting next to him. And of curiosity, he took the lamp, shined it on the chamber. And the region of the chamber that was uh, uh, lit, illuminated by, by the lamp, the exclusion zone grew. It grew by a lot. And... Um, so he called me in and I took a look and I was thinking, wow, this is amazing, uh, if true. And we, we uh, quickly confirmed that it was true. And we checked to see which wavelengths of light, you know, you have an incandescent bulb, which was sitting there and it, it projects many wavelengths. So we tried, first we tried ultraviolet light, no expansion of the EZ. Uh, we tried visible light. Uh, longer wavelengths, uh, and we saw oh, just a, a very minimal uh, expansion, it, it, especially toward the reds. We found them, and 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 on, on the shorter wavelength end of the spectrum near the ultraviolet, nothing. 
And then we went on um, to infrared and boy, gangbusters. It was amazing. Uh, infrared, uh, a little bit of infrared light from an LED, from a light emitting diode could expand the exclusion zone by 10 times. Uh, really, wow. really powerful. Yeah, so we, we checked, of course, to see which wavelengths um, of infrared were important. And it turned out to be basically three, about three, three microns wavelength. Um, Would that be near, mid, or far? Well, it's, it depends on who you speak to because the boundary <laughs> uh, is not near because uh, near is our wavelengths. So the, the visible spectrum ends at around 800 uh, nanometers or 0 0.8 micrometers. And from 0 0.8 micrometers um, on, I don't know what the usual uh, limit is, but that's near infrared. And um, I, I think this is somewhere between uh, middle and far infrared. But anyway, it, it, it's three three micrometers uh, is is the strongest. But other wavelengths are really powerful as well, not just three micrometers. But three micrometers is what water likes to absorb the most. Uh, the absorption spectrum shows that is the main absorption wavelength. And, and so it turns out that um, the, the wavelength that's absorbed by the water most profoundly is the same wavelength uh, that builds the EZ most profoundly. So in other words, you might say that this absorbed energy has a use, a purpose. It recharges the battery. Um, so now the question that arises, um, maybe I'm going, going too far, but where, where do you get this kind of energy uh, you know, the, uh, is, it, is it around in the environment? or uh, Well, yes, it is. So um, if you, you think of infrared, infrared light, uh, you think about, uh, many people think about, you look into the toaster when, uh, when it's turned on, you can see the glowing, or, or an oven, you can see the glowing, orange glowing coils. And many of us will say, oh yeah, well, that, that's infrared energy. The, inf the energy is is radiated uh, and um, it feels warm. Uh, and, and so it's generating infrared energy. That's correct. Uh, however, infrared energy is all around us uh, in abundance. So, and the way, the way you can test this, the way you can check is to turn off all the lights. For example, all the lights in your studio. Uh, you can't see anything. Your cell phone can't get an image. But if you had a if you had a camera with um, instead of a, uh, an ordinary uh, uh, ordinary sensor that senses a visible light, if you had one that senses infrared light, you get a beautiful image of uh, everything in your room, of course, including yourself, and because they're all all generating infrared energy, and and so um, military has, of course taken advantage of uh, this opportunity. And the infrared cameras are used as night lights. Uh, and, and they're also around in surveillance cameras uh, need to see at night. And so, so in other words, the energy that's required for buildup of EZ is around everywhere. And I should mention the sun because the sun is the ultimate source of infrared energy. When you feel warm, that, that's coming from the infrared energy that the sun generates. Uh, and um, measurements have shown that, that roughly half of the energy that comes from the sun is is in in, in the infrared region. That's why you you feel warm. 
So because this infrared energy is all around us, it, it, means, it means that easy water or fourth phase water exists all around us. Uh, and if you were to add more infrared energy, like from a lamp or something, then um, fourth phase or easy water would grow. And that, that's been amply demonstrated. Okay, so I think I should stop there because I, I <laughs> I've given you a reasonable picture of what fourth phase easy water is, and I, you know, I'm happy to expand on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so or, first, let or, me just—I should have mentioned this before we started. Due to the nature of of lag online. I absolutely love just tossing softballs and letting you run with it. If you wanted to give an hour and a half long lecture, I would be, I would just be sitting here completely pleased. So uh, don't, don't ever feel, don't ever hesitate on, on how long winded an answer might be because it's perfect for this type of interview. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning here right now with the, with the crew. Um, Fantastic. So, so one of the things uh, as you're talking about the exclusion zone if infrared light is helping that grow, and to my knowledge, infrared light is helping mitochondrial function and a number of other things, and we'll dive into energy because this was a big reason I wanted to have you on as it pertains to ATP versus as it pertains to the exclusion zone and this battery that's creating. Talk about how the, the size of the exclusion zone affects the effectiveness of the battery and what that battery might be doing within the body. Okay. Um, let me respond to the very last phrase in your question and then... If I if I don't completely answer, please bring me back on track because I have a tendency to wander. Uh, and um, so, uh, yeah, in, ter in terms of energy, so inside the cell, um, inside of the cell is negatively charged. This has been well known for close to a hundred years. Uh, if you stick an electrode into the cell, you measure a negative electrical electric potential uh, on the order of uh, 50 to 100 millivolts relative to the outside of the cell. So inside is negative. What's the reason the inside of the cell is negative? Well, the standard arguments, which I, I believe are wrong, uh, and I'll explain in a, a bit why, um, are that the membrane of the cell has uh, uh, channels and pumps and and through the, these myriad channels and pumps, uh, uh, the cell is able to pump in and out various ions, uh, and and they can either exit or enter the cell through ion-specific channels. Um, that's a theory that's well developed, and many many groups, research groups, are looking into it. And I believe it, it, it it's wrong, and I've written about it in various publications. And I'll, I'll just say one one. Uh, I, present one, one argument that is um, the inside of the cell is like a gel. This is pretty, pretty well known. Um, in fact, a book was written on it more than 50 years ago about the gel-like nature of the cell. And I don't think there's any controversy about that. Or uh, So um, now, so you stick a, an electrode in, into the cell whose interior is gel-like and you get minus 50 millivolts relative to the outside. You stick the same electrode into a gel, um, which is just like the inside of the cell, but it has no membrane and therefore no pumps, no channels, and you get the same result. Um, so there's only one argument. Uh, there are multiple arg arguments. It, it looks as though the membrane, the pumps, and the channels have nothing to do with the uh, negative electrical potential. But 
since we know that the cell is filled with easy water um, and uh, the easy water is negatively charged, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to uh, conclude that maybe the negative charge is coming from the negatively charged easy water that fills the cell. There are other arguments that I said, I don't want to take the time to, um, uh, to, to detail them. So it means, it means that the cell is full of negative charges uh, from, from the easy water. It almost doesn't matter where the negative uh, charges come from, but I believe it comes from easy water. The reason I say it doesn't matter is that negative charges repel one another. So if you try to squeeze a lot of negative charges together, all they want to do is get away as far as they can from one another. Uh, you know, a very, very simple repulsion. Well, that repulsion amounts to potential energy uh, because you have a state of high potential energy when all of those negatives are squeezed together and they want to get away. And, and so um, what's demonstrated in the cells, gels, and the energies of life, a book is that the getting away of those, of those negative charges um, it, it is, is energy that can be used by the cell. And, and that particular book describes how the water in the cell, the phase transition, so to speak, in the water from organized structured water to ordinary liquid water um, amounts to potential energy that the cell is able to use. And it's used, it's used um, for example, in a muscle cell, uh, what transitions when the muscle transitions from relaxed to activated is not just the proteins, but the water and the proteins. And this is known as a phase change. Uh, it's well known in chemistry. And that phase change is what, what creates the contraction. And, and the same in, say, a, a secretory cell. Um, in order to secrete, what happens is, is that it's the proteins and the water that undergo a transition and the cell secretes, and when it's all over, the water and the proteins go back to their original state. So it's a cycle, and the critical in the cycle is, is the water, which undergoes a, a transition. So all of this is potential energy. Um, you know, the fact that the easy is charged, and this charge is then dissipated as the cell undergoes whatever action it undergoes. And then it, in order to revert back to the initial condition, you have to put in energy from outside. So the question that, um, if I've been at least a little bit clear, the question that arises is, well, okay, so in theory, uh, the cell uh, can use this mechanism to, to provide energy. And the question is, does it or how much it does uh, and whatever. So all of us have learned that um, the, the energy of the cell comes through ATP and and. And perhaps that's correct, uh, may well be correct, but I, I have to remind uh, you that um, we, we need to look carefully at, at evidence. So it was, uh, I think, around 80 years ago or so that a, a prominent chemi chemistry group uh, came to the conclusion uh, that ATP has a high energy phosphate bond and the energy of the cell is mediated through energy delivered by that high energy phosphate bond. Uh, how, how it exactly it does it has never been really clear. That's not what I want to uh, mention. What I want to mention is something that um, to which I was alerted by the same Gilbert Ling in his website, which last I saw 
still exists, gilbertling.org, uh, and even uh, past his, his passing. Um, and he brings up an issue that almost nobody knows about. That is, one year after this famous report uh, or suggestion about the high-energy bond of ATP, another prominent group reported that, no, 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 this first group is wrong. They made a simple arithmetic error. There was no such thing as a high-energy phosphate bond. Um, this has never been followed up, as far as I know, and as far as Gilbert Ling knew. Um, uh, maybe no surprise. I, uh, I, I'm not sure. But So you have two, um, two groups, um, and one said, yes, uh, our energy comes from a high-energy phosphate bond, and the other group said, no, you, you screwed up. You made an arithmetic error. There's no such thing as a high-energy phosphate bond. I don't know which one is correct, uh, but I do know that um, this is the sort of issue that demands follow-up because if ATP, if indeed the second group is correct, then we need to look for another source of energy. Uh, so it, it's that important. Well, there is another source of energy, and that is the potential energy that I've been talking about. And so um, there are three possibilities. Um, one... One is that, yeah, our energy comes from ATP, period. The second is there's some sharing uh, of energy sources, some coming from ATP hydrolysis, uh, and the other, the other coming uh, from this electrical potential energy that I talked about. Or a, a, a third one is a combination of the two. And we don't know what, what the correct answer is. I just want to emphasize that that the fourth phase of water, this negative charge, is potential energy. And if we're right in all that I've been asserting, then usually, usually nature doesn't waste anything. Um, and, and so it's a, if it's available, there's a good chance that nature is actually using it. So um, there's precedent for uh, water being involved in energetics, and the precedent comes from green plants. Uh, they take in sunlight. Uh, it's light. It's the first step in uh, of photosynthesis is light. And the, I should say the first step is um, with incoming light, the water molecule is split into OH minus and H plus. That's 100% efficient. Uh, and then there are many other steps, but that first step is pretty much what we've d d discovered that in maybe more generic form. And so there is precedent for the idea that energy um, can come uh, pretty much directly from, from light. And uh, we're pursuing this uh, vigorously to find out where the energy comes from. When you think about um, the people who don't eat, uh, and there have been quite a, quite a few. I think they're called breatharians or something like this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've, I've watched a couple documentaries on that. Yeah, yeah, you've seen maybe the same documentaries that I've seen. There's an uh, an Austrian uh, uh, guy, uh, I forget his name. Um, he's, he produced a documentary in, in which some 20 people were interviewed, people who don't eat for either for a period of a, a week, a month, or indefinitely, um, like the guy from India who, um, who claimed uh, 65 years of not eating anything, uh, 
and he was he was investigated by a, a group of physicians, uh, uh, including uh, uh, pulmonologists, cardiologists, urologists, all the ologists that you can <laughs> you can think of, and uh, and they confirmed that yeah, for a period of a couple of weeks in which he was locked into into a um, hospital room monitored vigorously and continuously he didn't eat anything and the guy had enormous energy afterward run up the stairs so uh yeah um uh, what's the guy strauberger is is the producer's name um strauberger from austria it's a great 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 film i highly recommend it but where do they get their energy so if they don't eat, if they don't get energy um, uh, from food and the food is then converted into um, ATP eventually, uh, but no food, uh, where where do they get their energy? And uh, a possibility is indeed um, uh, light or some kind of some kind of energy coming from from uh, the cosmos. And many of these people are spiritual or people who pray and such and possible that they have a, more of a, a, a tendency to take in or a tendency to take in more of this kind of cosmic energy than the rest of us. It's possible that they get their energy from light. Um, okay, so I think I've answered your question, but if I haven't answered your question, please please refresh me or tickle me or do as you wish. <laughs> No, I, I love that, and and yeah, it's funny. I was I was thinking of that documentary right as you were bringing it up because um, I've done a bit of sun gazing just just for the you know the 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 influence on circadian rhythm that it has, and understanding that that you know in the first at least the first twenty to thirty minutes of of sunrise and the last twenty to thirty minutes of sunset that it is something where you can look into the sun and and that that reset actually has a palpable feeling it shifts my neurochemistry it's something that actually changes my day if i can if i can watch the sunrise there's not a lot of things that are going to piss me off during that day you know it's like wow. checking the box on making my bed it's a very very good feeling wow. and understanding how you know a lot of, a lot of what we've been taught and what i've been lo- gravitating towards from an optimization standpoint or a longevity standpoint is how to enhance the mitochondria Right, these are these are the the little organelles that create all the energy in our system. So, if what you're saying is true, and the research points to this, that we actually have a second mode of which we can increase energy on a holistic level, right? Then that makes a great big difference in in what we're how we approach longevity, how we approach health, how we approach performance. Yeah, and so it's very fascinating to me. Yeah, um, I mean, and light influencing that, right? Like if this if this easy stack can grow from the influence of red light. That could be one of the mechanisms that I'm experiencing when I'm staring at the sun first thing in the morning or right before the sun sets. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure, uh, ab- absolutely. Uh, uh, and and you know, there's still at sunrise and sunset where the sun looks red. It's it's probably it, uh, it's it's easy to stare at because it's missing a lot of the other wavelengths, uh, and yet it's probably got not only red but infrared and energy also and any infrared that you absorb uh, is going to be building easy uh, water um, and and um, easy water is a necessary should we say necessary condition or step in 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 your cells activity because as, as I tried to point out earlier um, the, the cell undergoes a phase transition, which starts with abundant, easy water inside the cell. And if you're de- deficient in e- easy, 
uh, you say, oh, it's not going to work uh, in, in, in the proper way. And, and you have some deficit. Uh, it could be minor, it could be major. And if you then expose yourself or expose the right areas uh, to infrared, it's going to build up that easy water and your function is going to be restored. And that's why the sauna works so well. Uh, because it's basically heat, which is, which is essentially not exactly the same, but approximately the same as, as infrared uh, uh, energy. So you're exposing your entire body to infrared energy, and the infrared energy builds EZ, and whatever organs, organelles, whatever were deficient in EZ become restored uh, with, with EZ. Uh, in the case of mitochondria, the structure of mitochondria is just ideal for the buildup of EZ. So it may not be the mitochondrial mechanism maybe no different from what occurs in, in, in the rest of the cell, but maybe just more concentrated and higher ability to create energy. Is the mitochondrial structure it contains membranes, many membranes uh, in, inside the organelle. Uh, and these membranes uh, can build easy water. And indeed, uh, measurements show that the inside of the mitochondria is filled with negative charge. So a possibility, and I think a likely possibility, is that the way the mitochondria uh, generate energy is simply by building easy in a concentrated way. And then the rest of the cell can take advantage of, of this, this buildup. So so yeah, uh, mitochondria are really important and and the negative charge uh, inside the cell is is also extremely important in, in the energetics of the cell. Uh, more studies are needed, especially quantitative studies, but I think what you mentioned is absolutely critically important. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm... I'm uh... I guess I'm, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned sauna and sunlight. What are some of the other ways that we can enhance? Because I've, I've mentioned, I've heard you talking in the past about, you know, uh, one, one circumstance, um, you know, and it's not, may, maybe not direct correlation, but when you look at cancer cells, you see they have less easy, right? When we're looking at healthy cells that are producing energy, they're going to have more easy. So what are the ways that in which someone can become depleted and what are the ways that we can counter that and start to grow easy and actually structure our, our or water in our cells. Okay, you've touched on a whole bunch of different different things, um, and um, yeah, uh, cancer cells. So, um, yeah, it's true that uh, measurements uh, uh, in cancer cells show that the electrical potential inside uh, the cancer cell, instead of being somewhere like minus fifty to a minus a hundred, which is typical of many cells, most cells in our body, cells that are cancerous, uh, the electrical potential measured electrical potential is something on the order of 15 millivolts or something like that. Now, um, we think, uh, we meaning I, uh, some of my colleagues, uh, that the electrical potential inside the cell comes from the easy water. So if the magnitude of that potential is really small, it means you don't have much easy water. So uh, it and if you look at cancer cells, many of them are pretty much undifferentiated. They don't have as many of the proteins that would create easy water buildup. So, um, so you don't have a lot of easy water inside the cancer cells. What does that mean? Well, um, in order for cells to divide, 
the cell needs to be activated in some way. And when a cell is activated, the electrical potential will usually go from minus whatever it is, minus 50, minus 100 to near, near zero. And then the cell knows that, uh, oh, you know, I'm an activated cell. And the cell may begin to divide. And so in the case of cancer cells, with very low electrical potential near, near zero, the cell says, hey, you know, I'm activated. I should divide. And it divides. And then we have a, a, continuous, a continuous division and we have cancer. We have cancer cells that, that grow and, and grow very rapidly because they keep dividing. So if I were, um, <clears throat> if I were this is a bit beyond um, my field, uh, uh, but if I were looking for a mechanism of cancer, I would look right at the cell level and I, I'd look at the tendency to, to divide. I'd look at the electrical potential uh, because I think this is um, this is a, a possible route, mechanistic route to understanding cancer. As far as I know, there's nobody who's who's doing this. Uh, almost everybody is is focused on genetics and um, oncogenes and and what have you. And you know, so far the war on cancer, which has gone on now for 50 years, uh, initiated by President Nixon, it, it, the war has not been won. Um, and we're, we're still in a situation where, where um, so many people um, are afflicted with cancer. So maybe this deviates from your question, but if I were running the National Institutes of Health and funding cancer research at, I think, $10 billion a year or $20 billion a year, uh, I'd, I'd change focus because so many years of focusing on genomics has not produce the desired effect. I think the uh, NIH should open to the possibility of looking into other mechanisms. And th th this is a bureaucratic uh, kind of thing. It deviates from the kinds of issues that you're raising in this podcast. But, you know, you, you, if, you, if you knock your head against the wall and it hurts, uh, you don't keep knocking your head against the wall. Um, so you try something different. <laughs> I think that's where we we are right now, and uh, so I I don't remember your initial question. So so that's that's perfect. We we you took a you took a deep dive on cancer and and yeah, Richard Nixon I'm sure did a lot of good things. <laughs> Thankfully, I wasn't around for, but I'm still uh, feeling the ramifications of. Um, but I will say, you know, one of the, one of the one of the questions that I wanted to take it towards as we got we're now in the last quarter here of the podcast is, are there ways where we know we're going to deplete? easy water in our body? You know, what are some of the practices that, that, that screw us over? And then what are the ways in which we can counteract that? There's a lot of things in the modern world from glyphosate to you name it. I'm sure Ben listed a whole host of, of things that he's trying to counter uh, in his practices. And I'm just wondering like where, where, where there are common pitfalls that could drop uh, our easy water. And then what are some of the ways in which we enhance that to make sure that we're optimizing our bodies and our, and our holistic, holistic selves? Well, you're, you're, you're right first in mentioning glyphosate. So um, we, we did experiments on glyphosate and published them. And uh, what we did is we set up uh, an experiment where we could see an exclusion zone in, in a chamber and we added glyphosate in, uh, and we added it in, in various quantities ranging from near zero to uh, substantial amounts. Uh, and um, at every... 
essentially every level, um, uh, uh, it, it inhibited the growth of easy water. So, um, in other words, we, we reduce the concentration of glyphosate to vanishingly small. And then, of course, if it gets small enough, it has no effect. But even at very low concentrations, it had some effect. And as you increase the concentration, the effect became progressively more profound. So basically, it's causing glyphosate is causing dehydration uh, because the easy water is essentially the hydration of a cell. So... So that seems to be what glyphosate does. And, you know, it's said to kill weeds, but uh, it may also kill us or certainly impair us by depleting hydration uh, of, of the cell. So on the other hand, uh, ways, the converse of that, the ways to build easy water, which we tested in similar ways, is by adding varying concentrations of agents, uh, agents that have been used since Ayurvedic times and by the ancient Chinese. And they knew, uh, of course, they were interested in, uh, in promoting health uh, uh, or figuring out how to stay healthy. And so we tested some of those agents. And um, turmeric is a, a good example of, uh, of it. Basil, holy basil is another one. Uh, and... Uh, uh, ghee, you know, clarified butter. Uh, and we tested uh, a whole bunch of those, and every one of them increased the size of the EZ in concentrations that might be expected to, you might be expected to have it in your body. So our, our conclusion from that is, um, you know, if cells need to be filled with EZ to work properly, if you take these agents, uh, pretty much any one of them, they should enhance the growth of EZ and therefore restore your body, the cells in your body to, um, to their pristine state. Uh, and so that's, that's method, method number one is to um, uh, use these agents. Method number two is drink a lot of water because you drink the water, some of that water, not all, uh, some of it gets peed out, but some of it gets um, converted into easy water because the surfaces are there, the hydrophilic surfaces that are necessary. And because the energy is there uh, coming from outside, as I mentioned earlier, and also your metabolism generates heat and uh, heat is associated with EZ. So, so that's, that's a way of, um, of in increasing the EZ in your body. Another method uh, is so-called juicing. Uh, and um, you know about it, but I'm not sure that your listeners uh, uh, know fully, but that's going into your backyard and harvesting some of the uh, leaves from the freshly grown plants and squeezing the water out of them or the juice out of them, squeezing them to death. And there are machines that you can buy that do that very effectively. So you take, you take the water, the liquid from the plant, and maybe add a little bit of uh, pleasant flavoring so that it's tolerable and drink it. And so what are you drinking? You're drinking uh, the uh, water that filled these freshly grown cells. And that water is full of easy, just like our cells are uh, full of uh, easy water. So you're basically, by doing that, you're bypassing um, uh, the step of having your body convert liquid water into easy water. So you should gain a lot more easy water 
by so doing. And in my experience, this is informal experience, speaking to various health providers, that's that's one of the easiest um, uh, uh, methods uh, that that show efficacy in improving general health. It's easy, you know, if you've got a backyard and you grow, you grow vegetables and such, and it's effective because the claim, again, this is anecdotal. Uh, I don't know. There may be published material on it, but I, I'm not sure. And the anecdotal reports are this is extremely effective, that patients come back a few months later and they've done the juicing and whatever was afflicting them is either reduced or gone. Uh, so that's an easy one. Okay, what else? Um, um, I mentioned uh, the, the sauna, the, a good way you're, you're receiving infrared energy, heaps of infrared energy, whether, whether it's a dry sauna or a wet sauna, the heat is really what counts. And I'm not sure about you, but I've had my experiences um, uh, going into a sauna, feeling um, tired, depressed, whatever, and coming out feeling uh, vibrant. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's the best. Yeah, it could be quite a, quite amazing. And so I've shared with you the reason uh, why I think it works. The, uh, that infrared energy building easy in our brain, for example. Uh, and then uh, another one is uh, walking barefoot on the grass or on the beach near the water. So why, what, what, is, what does that do? Um, so-called uh, grounding or earthing? Uh, well, it has to do with the fact that, that the earth is not neutral. Uh, you know, we, we, we've, we've, we've grown learning that uh, the earth is neutral. I, I studied electrical engineering uh, for my undergraduate work, and uh, not one professor ever told me that when you when you stick the plug into the receptacle on the wall, that that third prong was connecting with anything different from zero electrical potential. In other words, neutrality it was not true. Um, and I learned that it was not true first from a, a, a Russian colleague who was working in my lab, and he was talking about the electric field of the Earth. I said, Andre, um, you're talking about magnetic field, right? I never heard of electric field. You know, no, no, I'm talking about electric field. Uh, don't you know that the Earth is negative and, and in the ionosphere up there is positive? It's like a capacitor with plus and minus, so you get an electric field, and the Earth is negatively charged. I couldn't believe what I was hearing from this guy, and I, uh, I went home and went to sleep scratching my head, and next morning one of my students comes in with, with the lecture notes, the three-volume book now of the famous um, uh, Nobel laureate, the so-called Einstein of the last half of the 20th century, Richard Feynman. Uh, his lectures are read by uh, practically every graduate student in physics uh, because they're clear and he had a sense of humor. And volume two, chapter nine, is all about the negative charge of the earth and all about the evidence for the negative charge of the earth. So, so what you're doing, if you connect yourself electrically uh, to the earth, is you're connecting yourself to a practically infinite supply of negative charge. What does that do? Well, we found in the laboratory that if we, um, if we stick two electrodes in water and we pass electrical current, 
that near that negative electrode or around that negative electrode, which is supplying electrons, uh, uh, the, the ordinary liquid water gets converted to EZ water just by the entry of those electrons. Um, it's a, a profound and 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 so um, yeah, um, when you connect yourself, um, the the electrons that enter into your body uh, build easy water, and they do the same thing as I've been discussing. They they build easy water inside your cells, just like we saw in the lab, and uh, and that ought to restore health, uh, health to the cells. Whichever cells are deficient in easy water will no longer uh, be be deficient. And again, uh, this uh, 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 this kind of uh, uh, electrical connection, or so-called earthing, or grounding your, yourself, um, has been widely acknowledged as being health-promoting. And because it's been around for a while, there have been many, many um, theories about how it works. I think it works by creating easy water. Uh, I might be wrong with that, but that's a simple interpretation. But it does work. So I think I've I've gone through a, a bunch, but let me just add one one more, uh, which is not not so easy to implement, but it's really important, and that is hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, you know, it's been used now for quite a few years, and um, it was used initially uh, for the healing of wounds suffered by soldiers. Nothing could heal the wounds. And someone figured out that uh, putting them into a chamber with high pressure, high oxygen, that is hyperbaric oxygen, uh, the wounds should heal. And they did uh, wonderfully. And since then, various companies that have been putting out the machines have been suggesting with evidence that it's not, uh, not only good for healing wounds, but many other afflictions. And I myself have been inside and my late wife was in, in, inside one of them. So it's basically exposing yourself to high oxygen and high pressure. We experimented with high oxygen and with high pressure. Each one of those builds easy water. And so when you, when you have the combination of them, it should powerfully build easy water. So that is another, you might say another expedient uh, uh, toward health. And I think that it works through the action of uh, building easy water the same way. So, the, you know, to summarize that easy water buildup is, I think, is a critical agent in, in promoting health. And what one needs to do um, is, is, you know, in, in terms of promoting your, your health is to experience as many of those as you possibly can. And I bet you do because you look awfully healthy. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, and, and most of what you're talking about was free, right? I know hyperbaric uh, may still take a prescription to do the full the full deal, but mild hyperbarics do not. A lot of chiropractors and different um, you know health and wellness professionals that are kind of uh, alternative health and wellness people might have the mild ones that you can just jump into without prescription, and that can be a little bit expensive. But uh, when I fought professionally. I obviously had a prescription for that and would get into the the heavy hyperbarics. And that that was just one of the most amazing things to work on TBI. And anytime I'd get dinged up from my career in fighting, that was the thing that would help me heal fastest. So that makes a lot of sense in that working. I have a, two, two final questions real quick before I uh, talk about your charity. 
Um, one, have you looked at human mother's milk or raw dairy milk? If that's structured, because it's about 97% water in the milk. So I'm wondering if that, if that is uh, structured in the same way well, that it's structured it's, inside uh, of plants. It's likely, we haven't tested it, but it, it, it's likely to be because the proteins and in, in the milk and other, other uh, molecules tend to structure the uh, water uh, that's uh, adjacent to it. And um, uh, yeah, it would be good to, to look into, but, but we haven't, we haven't done that. Okay. Uh, so sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. No worries. I feel great. We found an awesome raw milk uh, Jersey cow farm down in Schulenburg, Texas, that and everyone's drinking it. And we just all feel great. We've gotten a lot better from it. Oh, wonderful. Um, wonderful. And then uh, second, you know, I had Mario on from Analemma. They've been doing the structured water devices. He told me that he's he's looking to partner with you guys in some way, shape, or form to see how that correlates with easy water if it increases it. Um, what some of the differences are between the two. Have you guys started that work yet, or is that just to be determined? No, it's, uh, it's maybe in the future, but okay. we, we haven't cool. started that. Cool. No worries. Well, I'll look, I'll look forward to having you back on. Um, tell sure. us about your charity, and then you've got another book that's coming out soon. Yeah, well, the charity, there are, there are two charities. One, one charity is our, our own laboratory. Um, we've, we've really run short of money. Uh, uh, we had a uh, it's hard to get money for this kind of revolutionary sort of uh, of science. Uh, for example, NIH. Most of the people at the NIH who are either administrators or uh, or, or reviewers, uh, water is just it's nothing. Uh, you know, it's a background carrier of the excuse me <coughs> of the more molecules of life. Background carrier is not interesting, so it's really difficult to get money from uh, the usual granting organizations. And we were fortunate for quite a while to have a, a benefactor who was funding our laboratory. Uh, he loved our work. He said, I, I'm going to fund it. But he ran into some unexpected financial difficulty. And so it cut us off. We have a little bit of, of, of money from a foundation, uh, but we really need need more. So um, uh, one charity is our own laboratory. And you know, if anybody uh, out there has, has done well and um, has some enthusiasm for the kinds of things that we do, please contact me. We're really in serious need of, uh, of funding. And the second is uh, a foundation that we, we've started. It's called uh, the Institute for Venture Science. And the idea of the Institute is to fund scientific ideas uh, that challenge um, uh, mainstream ideas that have outlived their usefulness. Um, because the problem is generic. Uh, for It's not just about water. Anybody who has a, an, a scientific idea that challenges the prevailing idea has real difficulty uh, getting, getting money. Um, and uh, and so um, we 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 take in um, uh, donations from the outside, and we uh, are t intending to fund uh, people in all areas of science. I'm not talking about water or water only, but uh, throughout all of the sciences. And we, out of more than 200 free proposals, we received. Uh, uh, we anointed 15 of them and asked them to write full proposals, and we picked out the top five for funding. Uh, 
And we're waiting, hoping to get funding. So either that charity or our, our own laboratory at the university charity would would absolutely welcome uh, any input that that's possible. Um, Great. Well, I'll get I'll get uh, links to both of those charities and include those in the show notes, so it'll be very easy for people to just one click. Sure. Uh, onto both of those and take a look and, and contribute whatever you can. And I'll, I'll send this to my friends with uh, the big bank rolls and see if they can help out. Uh, tell, us about, tell us about the next phase of your career. Uh, what are you writing next here? Well, I've written two books um, and they're about to be uh, published. And the limiting factor is not me or my writing. It's my son, who's the artist. And if anybody um, gets hold of you, you can see examples of his art from the second book, The Fourth Phase of Water, whose popularity, by the way, um, the ratings on Amazon, the 600 plus ratings, are about almost at the same level as Harry Potter. It seems, it seems that that book has struck an enormous amount of interest. But my son, who illustrated it, um, he has extraordinary talent, but he's he's been busy expressing his talent in the remodeling of his home. So I've waited now for three years. And finally, he's, he's beginning. Uh, there are two books. Uh, the first book, the first book deals with the role of electrical charge in nature. You know, we think we understand a lot of about the nature that goes on around us. This is even beyond biology. Um, we think we understand what's going on, um, but we understand that at such a superficial level that um, if we dig dig deeper, we, we run into um, uh, a blockage. We can't, for example, gravitation. So gravitation, we, we know, uh, we've heard that uh, it depends on the two masses that are attracting one another. Bigger masses, um, uh, attract more than smaller masses. So we think that gravitation has to do expressly with, with mass. And a lot of things uh, agree, agree with that. However, you go to the next level deeper and say, why do masses attract? And that's where the conversation stops because nobody understands why masses should attract one another. And so I deal in the book, that's just one of a half a dozen different subjects or more that I deal with. What, what is the real nature of gravitation? Another one is weather. Nobody understands weather. Uh, and um, an atmospheric scientist told me that, um, he kind of whispered to me, hey, you, you know, you really want to know something. Atmospheric scientists don't understand two features of weather. They don't understand how evaporation occurs and they don't understand how clouds form. Well, in the book, I start from first principles and build up to hurricanes and tornadoes uh, in, in four chapters. Uh, how do birds fly? So it's another topic. Um, and if I were to ask you to respond to how birds fly, my guess is you probably say, oh, they flap their wings. But I can look outside at the eagles. There's an eagle's nest nearby my home where I'm sitting right now. And they they often don't flap their wings at all. And they fly perfectly fine without flapping their wings. So something else is going on. And I deal with that, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the, all that book needs is some diagrams from my son. Uh, he's got most of it done. And it'll be published. Next book has to do with the structure of the atom. Um, most of us presume that that 
you know, everything is settled because the same idea looks like a solar system. Uh, modified extensively uh, with subatomic particles and such. We assume since it's been in the literature for, uh, uh, or we've known that for a hundred years, five, six generations, it must be correct. And of course, it's a real challenge to understand about all of those, I think 60 or so uh, subatomic particles uh, that are now part of the model. And we, we kind of we presume, well, those physicists out there, they're smart. Uh, I, can make, I can't understand all this stuff myself, but they're smart guys out there, or men, women, and they must know what they're talking about. So, you know, I'll go study something else because they must have it right. So I, I can present to you um, uh, um, three or so arguments that are at middle school level, and nothing sophisticated that I, I think will convince you that there's got to be something wrong with what we all have come to believe. First one, um, nucleus, right, sitting at the center of the atom, and uh, it's got neutrons and, and it's got protons, according to the model. Neutrons are neutral, so we, we don't need to consider them in the context of what I'm talking about. But the protons are all positive. Now, you know what happens if you squeeze, you try to squeeze a lot of positive charges together. They want to repel. So the nucleus should blow up. Now, the physicists recognize this problem uh, with the model, but you know, presuming that the model must be correct, there must be a solution to this problem. So the physicist, um, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit, but I, you know, I invented a kind of glue to hold it all together, and it's called the strong force. And the strong force is now taken by physicists to be one of the fundamental forces of nature, because without it, and if you assume that that model is correct, without it, the nucleus would blow up, it would explode. So you have to have this force there, but there's no independent evidence for it. It's like a Band-Aid to cover a gaping wound. Problem, that's problem number one. Problem number two is you learned, and I learned, uh, uh, in middle school or wherever, that plus and minus attract one another, right? So you got a positive nucleus with that special glue to hold it all together, and you got negative electrons. So, you know, um, again, back to middle school, the two of them attract each other, and uh, the atom should collapse into nothingness. <laughs> the positive nucleus should draw all those electrons, and you've got no atom left. It's unstable. Okay, third, <laughs> third point is that... Uh, most materials are solids. In, in the periodic table, you, you find a, a, a few liquids and a bunch of gases, but for the most part, perhaps 90% of the elements form solids. So I, I look at the aluminum of my computer, <laughs> my, my laptop, and all the atoms are, of aluminum stick together. Now, think about how that can occur. So aluminum like all the other elements, has electron shells uh, that surround the nucleus. And if you try to stick two of them together, what you have is that one shell of negative electrons meets another shell of negative electrons. How do they stick together? They want to repel each other. Well, there is a, an argument uh, in the literature that for the so-called sharing of electrons, uh, I don't see how that solves the problem. 
the um, problem is still that because of those uh, electron shells that are approaching one another, there's a repulsive force and nothing to, um, to, to keep atoms together. They repel each other. They should all form gases. So if you put those three arguments together, um, for me, you've got enough justification to, to reconsider whether the model that we've all accepted is correct. Uh, so I go on from there and propose a model that actually was similar to models that were proposed at the time by the most famous chemists. They rejected this model, the solar system model. They said, it doesn't explain the simplest of chemical reactions. I think they're right. Uh, but it was the era, not of chemistry, but the era of physics, the early 1900s, when there were each year a new Nobel Prize for, uh, uh, they went to the physicists, not the chemists. So the chemists uh, lost out and the objections uh, uh, were, were not seriously considered. And it turns out, I found out only recently uh, after the book was written, that one of those chemists proposed a model that's very similar to what I'm proposing. Um, I felt confident by that. So uh, I might be on the right track. I might not be on the right track, but I think it's really time for uh, reconsideration of uh, the, uh, the most, perhaps most fundamental issue and uh, one of the most fundamental issues in science. What is the structure of the atom? That's the second book. Just waiting for some illustrations. I hope it comes out within a year, year and a half or so. <laughs> so I, I guess I'll end with that. <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah. that. Well, and I can I can certainly appreciate where your son's been at. Where we're building the building the house right now on our farm and running into delay after delay. So I, I get I get the whole remodel deal. Um, well, hopefully he's he's on an easy street here and a straight path forward, and we can get these books out soon because I'm really looking forward to to getting my hands on them. Well, thanks. I hope so even more than you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. Well, thank you so much. Sure, my uh, pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Where can uh, we'll, we'll get all the information for where people can find you and all that stuff and link to it in the show notes. And uh, we'll most certainly have you back on after your new book's release. 